Welcome to SocialCast, your go-to place to learn about marketing, the latest social media news and insights. Brought to you by Social Bakers. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next podcast episode from Social Bakers. Today, we speak to Stephen Maringer. Stephen has had a pretty exciting career by any standards. He's manned a TV studio in the Embassy of US in Baghdad, and then later led the digital transformation strategy for NATO. And that's exactly what we want to speak about today, is digital transformation. Now, mind that this podcast episode was recorded before the entire COVID-19 crisis, so we don't touch on that at all. But this topic couldn't be more pressing today. We've all been forced to work remotely and in some sense, digitally transform. Stephen has a lot of insights in that area. Without further ado, let's dive into the conversation. Well, Stephen, welcome to the Social Bakers podcast. I'm really excited to have you here and I think our audiences too, because the topic we're going to discuss today is so important for so many marketers right now. Indeed. How are you doing? Uh, we, I'm very good. Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you. I, I'm grateful for your request to let me talk with you and uh, share some lessons that I've learned in my career and also talk about the what next of communications and technology and the huge digital transformation that the world is facing. Right. And uh, Stephen, you really have a an impressive career behind you. Uh, can you maybe tell our audience a little bit about your journey and uh uh, your role in transforming digital communications at NATO? Absolutely. First, I would say uh, I am very grateful and I'm so fortunate for all the experiences that I've had. Uh, I can say I have not lived a boring life. And uh, as I said, I'm happy to be here and, and I've learned a lot of lessons and I'm happy to share those with you. My communications career started when I was still a university student. Uh, I had an internship and then I got a job working as a radio DJ. And that was my first step in learning how to communicate to, to larger audiences. Uh, then I also started working in television news uh, after I graduated. And I got I followed a very classic television news career where you start at the very bottom. I was hired initially as the morning show associate producer, which is about one mm-hmm. step above the cleaning crew uh, in terms of television news. And I was fortunate it was a smaller market where there's opportunity always to grow. And I also showed myself to have talent. And within six months, they actually put me on the air as on-air talent, uh, a newsreader, or we say anchor in the United States. Uh, that and must have been stressful. It was honestly, it was not something I wanted. And the, it was funny, the, the news director came to me one day and he's like, you're on radio, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm doing radio. He goes, he hands me a piece of paper, he goes, go record this. And I, so I went and recorded audio of me reading some news. And he's like, okay, we're going to do a camera test with you. And next thing I knew, I was I was on television, and I was I would say I was I was told I don't want to review myself, uh, but I was told yeah, you're doing a good job on that. But it was not something I really wanted. I was much more comfortable behind the microphone than I was on mm-hmm. camera at the time, and so I did this for about six months, and I was uh, at the same time advancing in my producer career as a newscast producer. And after about six months, I, I went to the news director and said, "Look, I, I really." didn't want to be the on-camera guy. I really want to focus on being the producer. I'm much more interested and motivated by being the guy behind the guy, managing things behind the scene and, and making the decisions that are, are where the communication fundamentals lie and how we're communicating. Mm-hmm. So my friends thought I was insane to give up an on-air position because that's what everybody wants in television. And it never was a desire for me. I never had an interest to be on the air. I was much more interested in being behind the scenes 
and making those decisions that help craft and create quality communications. So, yeah, so I, that's the first part of it. And then, then really took it a different direction. Well, I, I, w- I worked in television news for 15 years. Uh, I worked across the United States, uh, and I loved being a journalist. I loved being uh, involved in news. You're always involved with what's happening. And after about 15 years, I kind of became disenchanted with the direction of television, which is honestly a whole other podcast, so I won't go too deep into that. Right. Um, but I began to look for new work, and I, I was honestly out looking one day for a job, and I came across this gentleman's biography who's a very interesting guy. His name is Robert Jordan, and he's an international terrorism expert. He had done tours in Vietnam. He was the public affairs officer in Beirut in 1984 when the Marine barracks were bombed in that terrible incident that happened. He was the communications guy on the ground handling that situation. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's led his own incredible career, and I, f- I found his biography, and I realized he'd lived just a couple miles from the television station I was working at in Orlando, Florida. So I went to my management. I said, this guy is super interesting. We need to bring him in and make him our guy. So if an event happens, we bring him in. He's on our onset analyst uh, to, to define what's happened in an incident. And I stayed his main point of contact, and, and uh, we would be in touch once in a while. And one day I got an email from him. And it was a classic Robert Jordan, one sentence, up for an adventure. And it was a job posting to go to Iraq and to work for the U.S. Department of State in the embassy to run their broadcast operations. And wow. at first, I kind of just laughed about it. So I was like, how funny would that be to leave my very comfortable life in Florida and go to a war zone? But I had gotten to a point where I really felt I needed to change uh, out of journalism uh, because of the, the issues I was seeing were where news was going. So the first couple of days, I kind of thought about it and laughed about it. And then I decided, OK, just apply. And then. I know I've done it. I didn't honestly expect to get the job because it's government and they almost always have somebody already in mind for for jobs and they have to post the things to follow the rules. So uh, I put my application in at 8.30, sorry, 2.30 in the afternoon. They called me at 8.30 a.m. the next morning and they said, you're exactly the profile we've been looking for. They wanted someone to come directly out of television to run their broadcast operations because they had a team who didn't really understand how to utilize this facility that they had built at the embassy. So six weeks later, I'm flying off to Iraq. I've left television. I'm flying off to Iraq uh, to help them manage their uh, studio and their broadcast operations and help them understand how to capture this. And it was very uh, surprising to me when I arrived there. This at the time was the largest U.S. mission in the world. And their concept of communications and outreach was phone calls, emails, and press releases. And they had had a challenge with the studio because they didn't have the right people in there who understood how to run it and how to capitalize mm-hmm. on it. And the, the catalyst for me to, to make this a very robust operation for them was when Vice President Cheney came to town. Mm-hmm. And they said, we, the, this vice president's coming to town. We want to do a, a press briefing in the studio with his traveling press pool. And I was like, okay, that's very easy. Some lights, some flags, a table, chairs, easy as that. And I'm standing there with the senior public affairs officer. And I said, well, you know, if we're going to do it in the studio, I said, I'll turn my cameras around and let's put up on the satellite. And there was this pause and they go, and what will that do? And I said, oh, now I understand. You really have no idea of the capacity of the studio. And so I said, tell you what, I'm going to do what I think is best. And if you don't like it, you tell me to stop and I'll Mm -hmm. stop. And so we did a, the first ever live press briefing from U.S. Embassy Baghdad with the Vice President Cheney, Ambassador Crocker, and General Petraeus. 
And this was live on all the networks around the world. And it was that point when like the next day I came in and they were just like, how did you do that? <laughs> like you're, you're one guy we sent out there to, you know, to help us with this. And, and you've done things we didn't even imagine. And my response was very simply, my job is to make your job easier. Simply that. And it, that was the point that changed their understanding of the studio. And we went from doing a few events a week to three or four events a day for two years. Right. And so I was and, very uh, proud be, to be able to be there and, and help them maximize their mm -hmm. opportunities for communication. And to really, I can honestly say proudly, I helped change the focus of the mission and the communication okay. for the mission in a very positive way. When did the, the jump happen to, to NATO? And, and so what was your journey like in NATO? Sure. So I was in Iraq for three and a half years from 2007 to 2010, which is quite a long tour in a, in a war zone. And I began looking for uh, an opportunity to to leave. And I found this job uh, online. It was not an appointment. I was not selected. I, there was no special granting of permission to get me there. I applied and, and I won the competition. And mm. I was fortunate to, um, to be able to show them in my recruitment process that I understand where you are and I understand where you need to go. And I think I had some advantage versus the competition. We were there and it was a, it was a very much a pool interview kind of a process and, uh, external consultancy screening and all that sort of thing. And I could see clearly in the competition that they didn't understand what I was understanding in terms mm. of you need to define a good strategy and you need to set the right objectives and give yourself the resources to get there. So when I joined NATO, um, they were, they had taken some steps to create uh, a digital team and they had sort of cobbled together pieces of different teams to bring this together, but they didn't really understand what they needed to accomplish. And that was a big part of, of where I went in there to help them to analyze what you have to work with, decide mm -hmm. what you want to do, set your objectives and let us get there. And it was funny the, uh, when I went and met with the assistant secretary general for public diplomacy, and I give him much credit for having initiated the change that had started. And he was quite mm -hmm. proud of what they'd accomplished. They had invested in staff and money. And he was very excited to have me come there to, to, to begin. And he said, the Ferrari is ready to run. And I was super excited because I'm thinking, okay, this is defense, this, you know, the money and the resources and the teams. And then I show up the first day and I was like, this car doesn't even have wheels on it. And it wasn't that they were misleading me. It was again, they, they just didn't understand what they needed to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So we were really starting from the beginning and creating a uh, digital transformation for NATO. And creating a digital outreach capacity where I can say very proudly, we changed how NATO communicates to the world in just right. five years, which is a huge accomplishment in a very complicated organization and a bureaucracy where they're often resistant to change. And my job really was to set the vision and create mm -hmm. an environment, uh, set the vision, move the money and the administration and the barriers to progress mm -hmm. to allow my team to do the work they needed to do to accomplish the objectives we were going for. And so it's right. very much a, a need for resilience and uh, knowing what you want to accomplish and being able to prove that what you want to accomplish is the right decision for NATO. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, if you don't mind, if we kind of, we already started talking about the, the subject of, of this podcast. And mm -hmm. so um, digital transformation, then is it really a, a mission impossible? And, and it sounds like it was in many parts very difficult for you, but if you could uh, explain more what you, you hinted already at some of the challenges, especially budgets being one thing that maybe I haven't actually considered for this podcast, but of course, 
Um, what else? What else really gets in the way? So it's not impossible, uh, and I would never want to look at something that way. It's, but it was challenging, absolutely. And the first step for any organization, government or, or uh, corporation, is you have to take the first step. The first step mm -hmm. is take the first step, and you have to have support from senior leadership. Trying to work from the bottom up is very complicated because you'll get stuck in that bureaucratic mud that keeps organizations from moving faster. Right. You have to have senior leadership support to to make this kind of thing happen. And so it was in, uh, and I was fortunate to have that with uh, the former Secretary General when I arrived, De Hoopskeffer. In 2007, Ambassador De Hoopskeffer said, NATO is in the Stone Age in terms of communication. We have no ability to show our work in the field, and we have a very weak presence on the internet. And that was a catalyst moment for senior leadership at NATO to realize something has to change. And when I arrived at NATO, they were 10 to 15 years behind in terms of communication and the technology that they were using. I'm very honored to have been the first person in this position, in this role. And as I said, NATO had, had brought together a team of what they thought was the right mix. But it was just about putting the pedal to the metal, giving them the, mm -hmm. the, the vision and the, and the objectives and the resources especially to make it happen. And the television studio that we had at NATO was, is a classic example. I had been there for just a few days, and I went in to meet the broadcast team and get a tour. And I walk in the door, and my first thought was, and I said this out loud, I was like, oh, my God, what a mess. Mm. And the head of broadcast operations was standing right there in front of me. And I quickly realized, I was like, oh, maybe I said too much. <laughs> and he, he, he walks over, he shakes my hand. He goes, oh, thank God. You understand. Because they had been working with a studio that was uh, 20 years behind in terms of the technology. And it was not pretty to look at. And it didn't function well. And the main point I had with that was like, the studio, one, is your hub of building mm -hmm. digital transformation. And it's also the first face. It's it essentially, it's the face of the world. It's what people see the most about NATO is the officials and the VIPs and the secretary general on television in the studio. And so they were giving me a tour of the studio and I was quite disappointed. That's a fair word, disappointed. And they showed me the audio mixer. And it was, this was the first digital audio mixer on the market in 1997. Mm -hmm. We're now in 2010. And they showed me the audio mixer and like, yeah, you know, we're afraid to turn it off because it might not turn back on. And at that point, I said, okay, this is it. This is, this is ridiculous. We need a new television studio and I'm going to use the audio mixer to get it. And I could see the team looking at me going, yeah, right. Good luck with that. And this was again, talking about lessons. This was a mm -hmm. big lesson for me in making change happen, especially at NATO. I realized I took, I went home that night and I thought a lot about it and I realized that. If I just go up and make a request and talk about our need to maintain pace with technology and more sort of general discussion, it probably wasn't going to go very far. The lesson was I needed to make this a problem for leadership. Mm -hmm. So I, I went up to the assistant secretary general and I said, we've got a big problem. Uh, you know, let's say the secretary general, he's doing a live interview with a major international media outlet and his microphone goes dead. Yeah, there's nothing we can do about it. That got their attention. Well, we don't want that to happen. What do we need? I said, well, you know, we need a new audio mixer. But what we really need is to build a foundation for the future of communications and create a modern broadcast facility. And they gave me immediate approval. 
And I went down to the, the head of broadcast operations and I was like, good news. We're going to be getting a new studio. I need to get your plans together. And he turns around, he grabs a, a folder off of his shelf and he hands it to me. He goes, here you go. He'd had this plan for 20 years and he kept it updated to the requirements and the technologies that were coming out because he knew this was going to happen. He just didn't know when. So he hands me, he immediately hands me a plan. And I said to him, I, I need to give you a big challenge because procure, uh, another big challenge in digital transformation for large organizations is procurement, getting what you right. need. Yeah. And NATO is not quick at that. It's a very uh, slow, difficult process. And I said to him, I'm going to give you a challenge. We can't wait for this studio. We need it as soon as possible. I want it in one year. And he did. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know how he knew NATO and the administration and working through the bureaucratic mud very well. So from the time he handed me my plan, time, time he handed it his plan to the time that we're opening the new studio was one year. And that's going through procurement, design, engineering, installation, which is a huge accomplishment for NATO. And so that was the first step for NATO in creating a modern digital operation. And again, it's a big right. lesson for me about making change happen. Yeah. So I, th I think what I'm hearing from you that, okay, so there's the technology part, there's the people part, you got to have the support. And, mm. you know, if you don't have that, it's actually really difficult to start. But uh, if you think about, you know, yeah, uh, outside of NATO, other, other maybe governmental organizations trying to transform, uh, what should be the, you know, the first steps towards that direction if maybe there's, there's more obstacles that are getting in their way? Sure. So another lesson that I learned, uh, if you're committed to change and again, making the right decisions for the right reasons in the organization's interest, sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness instead of permission. And an example of that is NATO on social media. NATO was on social media before NATO knew it was on social media. Uh, when I mm -hmm. arrived there, this was part of my, my job description was get NATO on social media. And I spent about two months developing the plan. You have to you have to very much consult at NATO and get you know the right approvals and that sort of thing. And I was walking this plan around, and everybody was like, "Nope, no, mm -mm, can't do that, not going to do it." And I finally realized, like, this is not going to happen if I keep asking. So I, I talked to leadership I knew who I had the support of, and I said, "Look, we're ready to do this. We're just going to do it." And they said, "Do it." And I was like, "Okay, that's enough top cover for me." And so we we launched NATO onto Facebook was the first step. And I honestly expected alarm bells to start ringing when we uh, pushed the go button on that. And the first two days, like nothing happens except for followers. Followers immediately got on board. And after two days, we started to talk about it. And then I got into big trouble and I was dragged up to the boss's office and I was yelled at for about two days. I was in really big trouble. And now I can say all these years later, see, it was worth it. NATO now has a very robust quality social media platform with more than two plus million followers. And we're now communicating at the pace of the world. We're maintaining pace with how the world is communicating. Uh, so that was a very important part. Ask for forgiveness sometimes instead of permission, because that was a risk I knew was worth taking because I knew it was the right decision for the right reasons in NATO's best interest. Now, when it comes to the, the mix of technology and people, it's not something you can really put a percentage on. It's about having the right mix of talent and technology to achieve uh, a well-defined strategy. Again, you need if you're at the beginning, you have to start with a top-down review of both your technologies and your strategy and your resources. 
If you don't have the right people in the right place and you don't implement the right technologies, your strategy will struggle. So good mm -hmm. management who's leading digital transformation, you have to develop the resources and provide the tools to accomplish your strategy and foster innovation to try new things. And don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to change direction by following the path of where communication and technology is going. You have to be right. nimble and flexible and ready to adapt to new ways of communication. And what I've said repeatedly to uh, in, in many lectures and speeches and, and consulting with uh, the capitals of the NATO members, embracing new technologies and understanding their risks is a requirement for every company, international organization, and government. If leadership does not recognize this as a need, you have to do anything to keep repeating yourself and make them recognize that this is a requirement. Right. And, and of course, you know, you, you mentioned the sort of fear of failure, and I, I can really understand, uh, especially from the eyes of a governmental organization to, you know, failure is, is, you know, no one wants to be seen in the eyes of the public failing, especially if they're in office, you know, this current term. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine it's, it's very scary. Yes. And there's, you know, there's a long list of potential barriers to progress in digital transformation. It can be a very stale corporate mindset. It can be an uncertainty of where to begin. It can be a financial mm -hmm. issue because it does take investment. It can be resistance to change. It can also be what I call the digital fear factor, which is simply not taking the right steps to get started because the technology can be seen daunting to people who don't understand it and they don't mm -hmm. want to face it. That's why it's so important to have skilled, experienced management come in and help you define that vision and assure you everything's going to be okay. And you, you, you accomplish that by showing them, here's where we're at, here's where we want to be, and here's what we need to get there. And I, I can say that it was, you know, for NATO, there was some resistance because they had done the same things the same way for so long. I did face some internal resistance because there were people who didn't understand what we were doing. And they were worried what we're doing might work so well, it might make what they're doing look less important. Mm. And I really had to address that fear because that's not what I was there for. I was not there to, to build my own empire and take things over. My job was to make their jobs better. And so my focus of that was to just reassure them that we're going to help amplify everything you're doing. And the I focus for NATO's digital, digital direction was everything that we do for public diplomacy should revolve, revolve around digital. And digital should revolve around everything that we do. And when, when, when did that start to be visible? When, did, when could you see, you know, in the corridors that people are, are changing their opinions a little bit? It took time, for sure. Um, and I would say, you know, the, the process of acceptance, mm, within two years, because we started to show results. Uh, the fear of risks, that took longer. Because... It's a mix of people who are concerned about their own roles, people who are concerned about the risks. And I remember one day I was in a meeting uh, in front of a panel of ambassadors from different uh, nations to explain to them what is NATO's digital direction and what are we creating here and how you need to follow the same path and how what we are doing can support your digital transformation. And then I got the question, and it was a fair question, I said, what are the risks to this? And I said, very simply, the biggest risk is to do nothing because we will be left behind and we must maintain pace with how the world is communicating. 
and they accepted that very well. And I, I am, I am uh, also pleased to see so many of the NATO nations follow NATO's path in digital transformation. And there were very often times they faced a lot of the same barriers to progress that we had faced. And I said to them, look, go to your leadership and say, look, NATO is doing this. Why can't we? Uh, and sometimes you have to also speak to leadership's ego um, and you show them their counterparts in other parts of the world and other parts of leadership and say, well, look, this leader is on social media. This one's on it and we're not. And so that speaks right. to their ego. They're like, well, if my competition, so to speak, is there, then I need to be there as well. But you have to be willing to take risks. Sometimes you have to break, break the mold and, and push an organization out of its comfort zone. And that was a big part of, of what I had to do for NATO was pushing it out of its comfort zone because it is an organization that's, uh, risk is very much a part of NATO. They, they're not averse to risk, but change, change is definitely more complicated there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm um, curious to hear your opinion on this. So when we speak to uh, some of our clients, we, we really hear that digital transformation, sometimes it's taken as a sort of a, a trend topic, and uh, sometimes management will kick it off, but uh, transformation just somehow doesn't happen, or people think that it happened, but it actually didn't. And mm -hmm. How do you ensure that it's really kind of carried through and, and, and to the finish, and there's, it's actually bringing real tangible results? Yeah, you have to begin by defining your objectives. You have to know where you are. You have to create measurement of your progress and milestones so you understand the path that you're on. Uh, but to speak to that in a, in a bigger context, the most important part of digital transformation is more than just what government or international organizations or businesses are facing. It's what we are all facing. The entire world is in digital transformation. And so where is technology and communications going? Now, that's a huge question. And I'm going to speak a little bit on my own opinion on this right mm -hmm. now. Is that we're approaching a world that we're not clear about yet. Mm -hmm. I find it both fascinating and terrifying. What does excite me the most is we're really only at the very beginning. We have seen so much progress in, the, in technology and its impact on our lives in the past 20 years. But all that we have done is actually create a foundation for the next level of technology development. And that's artificial intelligence, robotics, virtual reality, augmented reality, and machine learning blending into every aspect of how we live, work, and play. And of course, what's the first thing humans do when we get that kind of technology? We run off and build highly advanced sex robots, but that's just a, a, a parallel uh, technology development. But I think we have to have some fundamental discussions what does it mean for society when technology has so much control and influence and information across a global population? Are we comfortable with corporate created surveillance for sale where we are, the technologies that we are paying for are being used to gather data as, as much data as possible about our lives mm -hmm. and our likes and even listening into our homes. And we used to mm -hmm. be in, in a phase where humans created and used technology to make our lives better. We're moving into a new way of living where technology is using us. And while there will be certainly a lot of many benefits across our lives and society in the world, it also comes at an enormous price. We are approaching the crossroads of privacy and surveillance. And mm -hmm. we will face a point where we will have to confront the issue to decide to fight for privacy rights or accept population assimilation mm -hmm. into a world where we're willingly giving up our privacy 
to technology. That is actually a, a huge topic to to discuss and warrants almost an entire podcast. And I hope we can uh, get you uh, uh, on some different time to discuss this specific sure. issue. But I just want to go back a bit into digital transformation and maybe it links a bit to what you just said. And it I does. Imagine... And I apologize for interrupting. It does. And that's why mm-hmm. I wanted to, to, to lay that out there because there is digital transformation happening for everyone. And I think it's important to recognize that. Now, back to right. the management of digital transformation. Um, it is vital to have effective management in that with a clear vision mm-hmm. and the experience and understanding to, to make success happen for you. Now, I've, there has been a lot of studies on the failure of effective digital transformation. It's five times, uh, failure is five times more likely to happen than success. Failure tends to be higher in digital transformation, especially linked to customer experience which is the mm-hmm. most common type of transformation that organizations are facing. And that is really, it's a fundamental management issue that large organizations, corporations, and governments need to address. You have to have effective management. You have to have the tools and teams working to make digital transformation happen. And management that sets objectives and defines the vision and fosters a working environment that allows the right combination of technology and creativity and innovation to create mm-hmm. digital transformation success. Now, that's a long explanation to give you a short answer to your question. Digital transformation never ends, and you have to accept that at the beginning. The pace of ev- and evolution of technology simply won't allow it. We're entering this huge phase of development. And I think leaders of digital transformation have to continually assess and adapt their goals to maintain pace with technology and the development and the changes in how the world communicates. So it never ends. Is a short answer. Yeah, no, you're totally right. It always throws uh, uh, curveballs. And, you know, there's, of course, now all the data compliance, data regulations, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the platforms themselves are changing how they manage data. And, and you know, <laughs> there's always something new every month that you kind of have to tackle. Absolutely. Um, uh, may I ask you, so if, if you kind of look back at your, your digital transformation uh, journey in uh, NATO, uh, now, uh, Looking back, what would you do totally differently? Well, I can comfortably say for NATO, we achieved a lot of success. You can look at everything NATO is doing now in digital outreach, and it is a quantum leap from where NATO was when I arrived. And I give enormous credit to my team in making that happen. Uh, I set the vision. I made sure we moved the money and we had the tools. And I made sure we blocked the barriers to progress to allow that to happen. And again, when I arrived at NATO, when I realized we're starting from scratch, uh, that's actually a place where I work best, building something new. And you can look now where NATO is at with a, a social media uh, portfolio with more than 2 million followers, the implementation of their responsive website. Um, the website when I arrived at NATO was, again, a good 10 years behind. I remember when I when I first got there and they were already in development on, on improving the, the platform that we were previously on. And I had to stand up and make a big announcement that we've got the new website and it's got a new look. And now we can embed video onto our homepage. And I had to say that like that was a big development where in my head I'm going, well, now what I'm saying is we're only five years behind the rest of the world. Right. So maintaining pace was one of the most important things that I wanted to make sure we accomplished for NATO in any large bureaucratic organization, it's tough to say, I can see that organization as a leader 
in communications and, and what you, if you can accomplish maintaining pace with how the world is communicating, that's already a big accomplishment. And that will at least make sure you're doing the right approach to communications. But you also have to build modern facilities, modern broadcast facilities, mm-hmm. because broadcast is digital these days. And still, what I, what I often say, if you're communicating on a global scale, broadcast is still your best bang for the buck. That will eventually change. And internet and internet communications is going to overtake that. But right now, you don't want to overlook television and radio especially. But make sure those mm-hmm. are integrated with your online uh, capacity for communication. And then also right. creating a team that understands how to create quality content and ensure that you've got added value in each channel. We've made very sure that across NATO's social media platform, and what I do see often in, in, in many different places, organizations that post the same thing across all of their social media. And yeah. there's no added value there. You need added value at each location so that when someone's there, they're getting something they're not going to get somewhere else. But you want to make sure that all of your channels are cohesive and cross-promoting to each other, that are they're supporting each other at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the creation of, of the team that I managed at NATO, this was new for NATO, and it was the first time they had a full-circle multimedia capacity in one team and be able to take what was often NATO's very dry information, speaking in the NATO language, and taking those concepts to content, to production, to digital, to global. And when I arrived at NATO, I, I can say that for a, a very long time, NATO was arrogant about how we communicated. Uh, we assumed some things that I had to prove wrong. We assumed that, one, people understood what we were saying, as we were often talking in this very complicated NATO way of speaking. We assumed that they were interested in what they had, what we had to say. And we assumed that they were understanding what we were saying. And I had to take that way, that approach and completely turn it over and say, no, we need to be where the communication and, and conversations are happening. We need to be speaking to the people in the right language on those channels so that the message gets across. And we need to create the quality content that touches people. And the concept that I, I tried to infuse into our content creation. I call it communications tangibility. And it's a, I like that concept because it's simple to explain and it's very simple mm-hmm. for organizations to implement. So communications tangibility, if you're showing somebody uh, an emotional story that hits them in their heart, you've created an emotional connection with that person. It's an organic connection mm-hmm. because they're drawn in at an emotional level before they even realize it. Or if you have good pictures, good imagery, good video that you can show and it sticks in people's heads, visual tangibility. Or if you're giving people information they can take away and use for themselves or information they can share with other people's informational tangibility. That's a much more natural way to connect with an audience. It's organic and it's much more sustainable because it is natural because you're touching with people on an emotional level. People know press lines and media lines when they hear it because they're usually very stale and sound very corporate and they kind of fly right over people's heads. If you approach your content from the, the, that approach of creating communications tangibility, you ha- create a much more effective approach. And that's an easy way to implement the concept. And what I encourage people to do is find content from other places that you would like your content to look like. And then show some examples. So give the concept, show some examples, and you will automatically have your team several steps ahead in that approach to quality content and digital transformation. Now, in NATO success, I, I'm very proud to say we didn't achieve everything that I would have liked. We could have done much more with 
more resources and more funding. But we accomplished so much. And to be able to say we've changed how NATO communicates the world was something I'm very, very proud of. Uh, the successes ranged from building the structure to support our digital communications, to identifying and launching the right channels, to putting those right teams in place, and then also bringing in the right content creators to make sure that the content creators are communicating across the table with the people running the channels. So you want to take your technology teams and your creativity teams and make sure they're working very closely together. It's not unusual, and I've seen it in many places where they keep those teams separate. And that can create challenges and conflict and, and, and let's say, challenge communication between those teams because they might have different visions and views if they're not communicating about what the ultimate outcome and uh, objective is going to be. So right. again, isn't that one of the, oh, sorry, go on. Uh, that, that, was, that was a key for NATO, was bringing these teams together mm -hmm. and making sure there's a cohesion between those teams and working together to challenge the, the strategy and objectives. Yeah, that, that, that absolutely needs to be one of the goals of, of digital transformation is breaking down those silos mm -hmm. in different departments. Which, uh, um, you know, and sometimes even in, in a company that hasn't fully digitally transformed, usually you do see those silos go really, really big and, and there's lack of just communication, like you said, between creative teams and, and the technology teams and the and, and management. And, yeah. um, another question to you. Uh, so you, you mentioned a lot of uh, successes and uh, we'd like to share some of uh, them um, with our audience. Uh, you mentioned the social channels. Uh, are there some other content programs that were particularly successful that we can include? Indeed, you know, a game changer for NATO was the creation of NATO Channel. Uh, mm -hmm. This was having a team of experienced journalists on staff, identifying stories, creating content, and helping us tell the story of NATO in a much more effective way. So you have to, and that was a, that was, you would say that that team was part of our create creativity team, but they also were a bit standalone because as experienced journalists, they could find a good story. They could tell a good story. Mm -hmm. They could communicate a good story. And that really is where the rubber meets the road on communications. Uh, communicating is not just speaking information. It's telling a story. That's how you connect with people. And that was what I also tried to, yeah. to it, it connects with communications tangibility is it's all about storytelling. And yeah. the, the NATO channel team, uh, we had three teams. We had a team at NATO headquarters. We have a, a team in Eastern Europe and we have a team in Southern Europe. So they're very well uh, spaced to deploy as needed uh, to help show what NATO is doing in operations, events, and activities. And as journalists, they also understood how to take the NATO way of operating and speaking and turn that into more interesting content. And so what we saw, was, you know, our approach to storytelling evolved, as did the rest of the world. And in the beginning, it was a little more institutional than I would have liked. At the same time, we also had some incredible content come through and, and field reporting from Afghanistan as well. Uh, in the field, which is not something that you would expect an organization like NATO to be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And so what I tried to really push was we're creating a platform where all opinions can be spoken. You shouldn't mm -hmm. be afraid of what people have to say. It's about how you respond to it. A good example for that was the NATO summit in Chicago several years ago. And there was a huge protest happening outside of our venue of the summit. And I said to the journalist we had, I said, go down and do a story on the protesters. Right. And so he first thought I was a little crazy to ask for that. And 
but he did it. He went down, he talked to some protesters, and they said the sort of things you'd expect them to say against NATO. And he came back and he wrote his story. And I'm reading the script. And in, in terms of journalism, you always want that balanced side. And this was very much a one-sided story. And I was thinking about it going, you know, there's not the other side going, well, you know, NATO does a lot of good things too, so to speak. And then I realized, I was like, in this context, you don't need that. And I wasn't entirely sure this story was even going to get full approval. And it sailed right through. And we put that story right on NATO's website. This was a story of people protesting against NATO. And we allowed that to happen because it shows NATO was a very open organization. And we're not afraid to have discussions about different opinions. And I've seen the same thing happen with NATO social media. Uh, when we first started, you know, of course, there's a lot of people on NATO social media saying very negative things about us. And it was interesting to see when we reached about 50,000 followers on Facebook, what we saw was the community starting to police itself. And so someone would post something that's uh, anti-NATO message and the community would step in and say, that's not true. And here's the, the facts that show that what you're saying is not true. And we tried. Amazing. Yeah, you don't want to. What I often say is you don't want to get uh, drawn into those uh, negative conversations mm -hmm. because they're trying to bait you. But what you do want to do is encourage the community to police itself and acknowledge that. Thank you so much for supporting NATO would be a very simple message to someone who helped us uh, defeat someone saying something against NATO that wasn't true. And what I also say is we did go through a period where we were getting a lot of negative comments. And I know many organizations and governments get the same thing. And what you need to do first is set very clear rules. Your rules for posting are this. Mm -hmm. And then enforce those rules. Otherwise, you let people say whatever they would like to say if it's their opinion. So, for example, if, if someone were to post a, a, a something on NATO social media that says, I want to attack NATO headquarters, that's a very obvious threat, that would be removed. Right. A post that says, NATO is full of mental patients, well, that's your opinion. And we should leave that one because if, you're, if you clear out all of the negative comments, your audience is going to see right through that you are centering the conversation. And that is going to completely work uh in your not your favor right i can't imagine just the scope of the the sort of the governance challenge uh in with two million you said uh followers on uh, commenting on mm -hmm. your pages it's just you you need teams really ready at all times to, to be monitoring indeed and it's about um it's about the teams who know what to recognize but also i would say uh the technology platforms also 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 offer excuse me also offer a lot of option for filtering mm -hmm. and do some automatic filtering, which can be very helpful. Right. And we've never really had a, a major issue in terms of, of comments that cause any real problems. It's just having the process in place and knowing how to respond to them mm -hmm. in, in a timely manner, of course, and also knowing how to respond to good comments. You want to show right. that there is a person behind the screen. Uh, you want to show that we are listening. And we appreciate mm -hmm. your, your support. Thank you for following us. You want to show support to your community because that's very important because uh, Uwen Semple is a uh, consultant that I met very, very many years ago. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called Organizations Don't Tweet. People do. And I think that's a perfect concept because you can't just be an organization speaking from an organizational voice. It's important to show there are people behind the screens that are listening. And you show also the people approach through your content. It's not about the organization. It's about the people and their stories and their successes and the work that they're doing and the accomplishments. So identifying a way to amplify the voice of people on all of your digital outreach is important.
Right. This is, uh, well, Stephen, your story is really amazing. And uh, actually, what are you doing now? And, and where can we uh, connect with you? Where can our audiences connect with you? So I uh, left NATO in August. Uh, I had to move back to the U.S. for some family reasons. And right now I'm, I'm trying a couple of different things. I'm not trying to do just one thing. Uh, I'm doing some consulting uh, on a fairly regular basis, which has gone quite well. I'm still supporting some of the NATO nations and their communications. And I'm also following some other different tracks. So I'm not doing just one thing. I'm doing three or four things. Mm -hmm. And I have been uh, I have a, an open opportunity right now that if it comes through, will be quite a big, uh, significant role. And I'm also sorry, I'm also working on uh, developing some local business for me as well, where I can uh, invest it, create it and then just manage it while my team takes care of business. So I'm not following one track. I'm trying to follow three or four. I've been on the crazy train for 30 years <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to take a step back and, and also while focusing on myself, uh, also focusing on creating opportunities that are fulfilling for me while also tapping into my experience. And so all of the tracks that I'm following and, and pursuing utilize different pieces and parts of my experience. Uh, and I'm very hopeful for that. Now, if people would like to contact me, please find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I am, of course, open to all interesting opportunities uh, and uh, am open to helping organizations, corporations, whatever kind of entity it might be, and governments in amplifying, excelling their communications, elevating the way that they communicate and helping them do that review. It often is so helpful to get external eyes yeah. to come in and see what you are doing and give yeah. you an objective opinion on where you could do things better because it, when you're in it, when you're in an organization of any type, you often, it's difficult to get a higher level view because you're kind of in the deep uh, work that takes place and it doesn't give you the opportunity to get your head above the parapet and look from a broader view. So I think it's important for organizations to bring in effective experience management and consultants to identify where they can communicate better. And there is always everywhere room for communication. And I'm happy to help anyone uh, with that. So please find me on LinkedIn. Perfect. And and even really your your advice is uh, pure gold, you know, without much experience. And this this has been an extremely insightful conversation for me. And I hope that we can get you on our podcast again pretty soon to discuss uh, other topics that we just, uh, you know, dipped our toes into. Absolutely. So, uh, thank I'm, you I'm so happy much. to see you again. I, I would just want to give one last lesson about what I learned yeah. from NATO. This will be very Dude. short, I promise. It's two lessons, actually. No, you're quite a storyteller, so, so uh, please, please do. Thank you. The, one of the greatest lessons I learned more than anything was resilience. You have to maintain your resilience when you're facing a communications challenge such as digital transformation. And you have to make the right decisions for the right reasons, even if you don't have management support. And the last lesson that I also learned, I should have asked for more forgiveness and less permission. <laughs> That's, that's great. That's a great uh, end uh, quote. Good. I'm glad you like it. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. I'm very grateful so, for the time to talk with you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah. Thanks for the time. See you again. Absolutely. I look forward to it.